my name's Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Fairhaven. And uh, today, we are going to spend some time looking into the story of the Tower of Babel, Babel, and its relationship to technology. But in order to fully understand the significance of this story, we first need to step back and look at its place within the larger story of creation, fall, flood, and now the story of the Tower of Babel. Because the story of the Tower of Babel is not a standalone story. But it's a story that is connected to the things that have come before it. The creation of humanity, uh, the, the creation of the world, the fall of humanity and Noah and the flood that we saw in the beginning. God created the world and everything in it. That God created humanity and placed them into the garden to care for it. But humanity's disobedience led to sin and sin led to death. The world was broken and humanity was in need of redemption. And that's where the story of Noah came in. That God invited Noah to save his family and the animals by building an ark so that they could be kept safe while the waters came and wiped away the wickedness in the world that by Noah's faithfulness, humanity was granted a brand new start. But in the Tower of Babel, Babel, I keep saying Babel, in the Tower of Babel, what we'll find is that humanity's tendency towards rebellion and pride was not washed away in the flood, but we find it manifesting itself in brand new ways. This desire to build a tower, to make a name for themselves. So as we look at this story today, Let's look at it in the context of what came before creation, fall, renewal through the flood, and now the Tower of Babel. And at at this moment in the sermon, at this point before we can move on, uh, I have a confession to make to you. Uh, Everything that I've said so far, I didn't write any of it. In fact, everything that I've done so far, no human has written any of it. Uh, How many of you are familiar with ChatGPT? Anybody? How many of you, hands raised, have played around with ChatGPT a bit? How many of you have done, like, a lot of research on ChatGPT? How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about right now? Yes! Okay. ChatGPT, get this up, get this, okay? ChatGPT is an artificial intelligence that you can access either through a website or an app. It is literally like, I don't even know how to describe artificial intelligence, right? Like, it's a computer, but it's not a computer because it, like, knows things, right? Like, so you can actually ask this artificial intelligence questions. You can give it context. You can ask it questions, and then it will give you answers, For example, you could sit in your office and you could write into this ChatGPT website. You could say, I'm preaching a sermon on Sunday about the Tower of Babel and want to connect it to the stories that came before it. What is an intro I could use? And then you could memorize it and stand on a stage and recite it to a community of people. What? What is that? 
Uh, This morning, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about technology. We live in a we live in a space where technology is advancing at what feels like almost like breakneck speed, right? Like we have availability, we have things available to us today that we could have never dreamed of even just a handful of years ago. So how do we? How do we, especially those of us here that, that call ourselves followers of Jesus, how do we follow Jesus in the midst of a world that is advancing and moving forward at unbelievable speeds? How do we do it? Well, uh, to begin, I want to begin with the way uh, we often begin. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 11? Genesis chapter 11, and I get it. Uh, there's a bunch of you right now that are going, no, no, not Genesis chapter 11 already. Like, what about Genesis chapter 10, right? Like, some of you, if you've spent any time in the brilliant genealogy that is Genesis chapter 10, you know, you, you, you're feeling inside the pain of skipping the genealogy to jump straight into Genesis 11, right? And then some of you are going, oh, but like, there's still a piece of the Noah story that we can't just leave, right? Like, there's the whole thing at the end of the Noah story that involves wine and tents and cursing of a grandson. Like, what is going on there? Uh, So those of you that are asking those questions, I'm excited to also invite you. Uh, We are going to be running a new version of the cutting room floor. Uh, How many of you were part of a cutting room floor before? A handful of you? Uh, If you are never part of a cutting room floor, essentially what we're going to do is every time we stand on a stage, Greg, Lori, myself, anybody else who's going to stand on a stage, there are simply things in the story, these stories we've been covering, the scriptures as a whole are unbelievably brilliant. And there are simply things in the story, in the text, that we just can't, that just don't make it to the stage. They end up on the cutting room floor. And so for the next three Thursdays from 630 to 8, I want to invite you back here so we can take some of those things from the cutting room floor and we can explore them and ask the questions continuing, what does it mean for us to follow Jesus in light of these stories? So go ahead, take out your phone, throw it in Thursday, 630 to 8. Uh, For the first one, just a little teaser. Um, We'll be looking at things like in the creation story, what is God creates male and female and says something about their relationship with one another, what does God say about that? Uh, We'll look at, um, uh, did you know that for the Jewish people, there is a day more than any other that they are most likely to get married on, and it's not a weekend. What day and why? And then how about this one? Uh, What is it God takes from Adam to create Eve? Thursday, 6.30, let's go. The answers might not be what you think they are. Thursday, 6.30, but today, Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, Verse 32. So we're going to start in the last verse of chapter 10. Uh, These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. 
As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Shinar would, have, would be in modern, in, in what was Babylon and now modern day Iraq. But, but we've got to pause because you saw something in this, right? Something in the passage already, something in the story already jumped out at you, right? Like you have kind of those, those lights in your brain blinking, right? Like flags are popping up. Something is off, right? Oh, did you notice the direction they're moving? Do you notice the direction? Where are they heading? East. To the original hearers of this story, that wouldn't have been a detail they jumped over. That detail would have been striking. Why? Well, in order to see that, uh, we need to go back and look at the direction people have been moving from the beginning. Starting with where God placed the garden. Uh, Genesis 2. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put a man he had formed. So we see the garden. So the garden is already in the east. And we looked a few months ago when we started the book of Genesis. What happens in the garden? Adam and Eve are created. They're placed in the garden. God calls them to care for the garden. But instead, they disobey. They eat from the tree they're not to eat from. And as a result, Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. They have to leave. Any guesses which direction they head? Uh, let's, you know, let's throw it up. Genesis 3. After he, God, drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So if... The eastern side of the garden is essentially barricaded, is defended, so that they cannot re-enter. Which direction did Adam and Eve leave? Which, which direction are they headed? They're going east. Adam and Eve, they're going to have kids, Cain and Abel. Cain is going to murder his brother Abel. God is going to come down, have this interaction with Cain. Where is your brother? Cain is no longer going to be able to stay at home. He needs to leave. Any guesses which direction Cain goes? Let's look. Genesis 4. So Cain went out of the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. It's almost as if in the opening chapters of Genesis... God is calling his people, God is calling humanity to live a certain way, to be a certain type of people. And it's almost as if from the beginning, they keep getting it wrong. And as we follow the story, it feels as though the people are constantly moving further and further away from the way God has called them to be until all the, the entire world, the earth is corrupt. Everything, everything has been affected. That it's almost like as the people continue to move east from the place where they began, where the story began, they're also moving further and further from the people that God called them to be. The, the people, in the words of John Steinbeck, are now like, we're east of Eden, right? Things are not the way they're supposed to be. We then have the flood. And it's almost as if in the flood, God is calling humanity back. Don't keep going in the trajectory you've been on. Turn around. Come back. 
And immediately after the flood story, what we find is that Noah has kids, his kids fill the earth, and which direction are people again moving? They're heading back east. The thing is continuing to move in the same direction. The warning lights start blinking, right? This is not a good sign. This is not a good start. The story continues. It says, they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Now, this detail as well is, is incredibly telling in the story. Because this detail is almost is significantly going to change the way the world works, the way the world operates, the way cities and nations and empires are able to build. That they said, come, let us bake bricks, and they use bricks instead of stone. Because in so much of the ancient world, the way you're going to build isn't by using wood and drywall and all the things we use today, right? In the ancient world, the way you started, the way people started building was largely by stacking stone. In ancient Israel, almost everything you find, almost everything we dig up, are buildings made out of stone. Uh, one of my favorite reconstructions, it's in northern Israel, looks like this. So as you look at that home, imagine you are the one that has to build this, ho- this, this house. What are some of the problems you have when you're going to use stone? Well, first, where do you get it? Right? So you have to find a place that has stone that is good enough for building. And so you find a place of stone, then you have to get the stone out of the ground. Right, so now you need to start quarrying stone. You need to start chiseling it and chopping it and pulling it out of the ground. But then you have all these kind of weird shapes and sizes. And so now you need to make them flat and you need to try to make them so that they'll, they'll kind of fit within each other. But you still have all these different shapes and sizes. You can see spots where like stones are jammed into little crooks and crannies. You can do it, but it's hard. It takes a long time. It's hard. It's really hard to build something huge simply using stone. So what the ancient world thought is, okay, well, instead of stone, what if we make something that is more uniform, that has edges? You don't have to quarry it somewhere. You don't have to do all the stuff to it. You can just use Brick. And so the world started using kind of what's known as mud bricks. So you essentially make kind of bricks kind of out of mud. You can then let them dry and you can stack them. But how many of you have ever, uh, you went to the beach and you tried to make like a wall with like the, the sand from the beach? Like anybody ever use those little blocks and you kind of make the wall? How, ca- how high can you get until the structure falls apart? Not that, right? Like by the time it dries, it starts to crumble. It's not, it's not a great building material that's going to last long and build high. But then the world realized there's something we can do to the bricks to make them like stone. In the story, the people said, come, let us bake bricks. Because what they found is if they baked their bricks, and the Hebrew actually says, like, let us fire bricks, Because if you essentially bring bricks and you add a high amount of fire, you can then create this baked brick that is essentially as strong as stone. So for the first time in humanity, 
Humanity has the ability to create its own building material that they can build as, with, with something that is as strong as stone. If we were to go to ancient Babylon today in modern-day Iraq, uh, we can actually find reconstructed, largely reconstructed cities uh, from Babylon. What is Babylon used to build? Brick. If you were to go to the, uh, the main floor, brick. With baked brick, you can build bigger, you can build, you can build an empire on bricks. You can build a village with stone, you can build an empire with a brick. Uh, so the Tower of Babel, the story starts with people uh, finding this brand new technology. We can take bricks, we can bake them, we can make them as hard as stone, and now we can build a city. And what is God, what, how does God respond to the new technology of the brick? He really doesn't yet, right? Like God doesn't speak into the story yet. It almost feels as though with the new technology, with this advancement in building material, it almost feels like God's, God's good at this point with what's happening. They've created this new thing. That's what happens next that gets his attention. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, I, I don't know what mental image you have, but when I grew up hearing the story that they want to create a tower, in my head, in my head, I had them like wanting to create this skyscraper, right? Am I alone? Anybody? Uh, in my head, they wanted to create this giant tower, and there was always the question of why, right? Like, why build the skyscraper? And some people said, well, like, it's because they wanted to try to get up to the heavens. And others speculated, well, they wanted to go try to fight the gods. What are they doing? Well, I think we can get an insight in, in what archaeology has unearthed in so much of that Mesopotamian, Babylonian area. There are, there are towers that we've been able to find underground in this region of Babylon that look like this. Uh, this is what's called a ziggurat. Uh, go ahead and say the word ziggurat. Ziggurat. We find them all over ancient Babylon, kind of the ancient Mesopotamian world. And a ziggurat is essentially kind of a, a man-made mountain that people used to make. And the hope in a ziggurat is you're creating kind of this man-made mountain so that the hope was you can go to the top and that the gods might come down and meet you there. So the hope isn't necessarily that you get to the heavens, but you build this really big tower so that you go to the top and that the hope is that the gods will meet you there. But did you notice the why in the story of why they want to create the tower? Was it so that they could worship God in this space? Did you notice the why? Uh, let's put it back on the screen. Uh, they said to themselves, come. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Did they want to create a place 
where they could meet with God and they could worship God. No. They wanted to create a thing so that they could exalt themselves, so that they could make a name for themselves because of what they were able to do. And do you notice the why, the fear behind it? They said that way we can make a name for ourselves. Why? Because otherwise we'll be scattered over the entire earth. Uh, another detail that to the original audience is going is to send those blinky lights in their, the dashboard of their brain blinking. Because this is going to feel east of Eden. This is going to feel contrary to what God called his people to do. After all, when God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, God gave them a job description. He gave them a command. And one of the things God says was this. Does God bless them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over it, care for it. A God would, would call Noah to place his family in the ark. The waters would recede. God would call Noah and his family out of the ark. And what we find is this. God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. And now we have a moment when people, when people decided, no, 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 we don't want that. Instead, we want to settle here in the east, building empire, building this thing, so that we we don't do that, and we can here build a name for ourselves. And so they build this tower, uh, potentially something like a ziggurat, right? The hope is that you go up, that God comes down. And what we find in the story is they almost get what they were hoping for, but it doesn't end the way they were hoping, right? Because the hope is that God would meet you. God does come down next, uh, if we continue the story. It says, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And can we just name God's response feels goofy, doesn't it? Like if they can build a tower, they can do anything. And we can't have that, right? It feels goofy, but in the, if we were reading this thing in the original Hebrew, what we would find is this. This would remind us of something that God's already done. A God speaking to himself about something he has to do in response to what humanity has done. This God talking to himself is going to be directly linked to what God does when Adam and Eve first eat from the tree that they're not to eat from. It says, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So God speaking to himself in response to what humanity's done is less of a, well, we, we can't have them advancing in tech. We can't have them doing this. But more of a, I'm seeing what this is doing to them where this is shaping them, what kind of people they're becoming, how they are turning away from, from who I'm calling them to be. And if I don't step in and intervene, if I don't protect them from their direction they're going, they will continue down this path that is 
destructive. And so God in this story comes down and we read the story ends like this. It says, so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. It's a a story of humanity finding this new technology, this new invention, and having to ask the question, how are they going to use it? How are they going to be shaped by it? Because a brick is simply a brick, right? It's simply a thing. It's a new thing. It didn't exist before. We've discovered it. It exists now. How is humanity going to use it? And what we find in the Tower of Babel in this story is that humanity decides we're going to try to use this for our own ends. We are going to try to use this thing to build our own kingdom, the empire of us, to build a name for ourselves. And baked into the story, there's, there are two times in the, Hebrew, in the Hebrew text, in our Old Testament, where this phrase, the baking of bricks, is used. Once here in the story of the Tower of Babel, the second is when the Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, has the Israelite people enslaved. And what does he force them to do? He forces them to make bricks, to bake bricks. In the Hebrew, there's almost this direct linkage between the making of bricks and the beginning of slavery in a lot of ways. Because what happened is empire realized if we can build this giant thing to to proclaim ourselves, to exalt our name, then the more bricks we make, the bigger a thing we can build. We need more people to build more bricks so that we can exalt ourselves. They wanted to create a thing so that they can make a name for themselves. What's interesting is years later, God is going to call his people to build a place because God does want to be with his people, right? If the point of the building is that we go up, that God comes down, that God is with us, God wants to be with his people. In fact, later in the story, God will call his people to build a building. We know it as the temple. And Solomon, uh, David's, King David's son, is going to be the one responsible for building the temple. And when he does, Solomon's going to say this. Uh, the Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David, my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of who? For the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon builds a temple for, not to exalt his own name, not to exalt them as a people, but to exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. See, where I, where I find this story so compelling, so relevant, and if I'm honest, so incredibly difficult, is this story of the Tower of Babel that forces me to stop, to step back, and to evaluate how do we use technology today, right? Because we live in a world that is filled with bricks. 
with these new technology, the new things that are being invented, each, with things like ChatGPT, where you can log into a website and ask it to give you an intro to the sermon. And at this point, I have a confession. No, I'm just kidding. I wrote everything else. <laughs> but, but, how do we use technology today for building of ourselves, for building, or for the glory to, to point to the one who created it, who gave us the wisdom and the understanding to discover it? How are we using the things today? A, a hammer, a hammer could be a thing that builds a house or a thing that inflicts significant physical harm. All in how we use it, right? How do we use it? How do we use the technology in our lives? And how are we continuing to be shaped by the technology in our lives? Because we'd be naive to think that we are not constantly being shaped by the things that we give ourselves to, by the way that we use the technology we have, right? The, uh, the, the elephant, anytime you talk about technology, like, we can't do it and not talk about this thing, right? This thing. That this thing, depending on how we use it, like, even the fact that I pull it out of my pocket and I see, like, in the middle of a sermon, I have notifications. Like, what are those, right? These things have a way of shaping us, partly based on how we use them, right? This can be a tool that allows me to be able to connect with people that I wouldn't otherwise be able to. I can have friends in places that are hard for me. I, back in the day, we used to have to write letters, right? Now, I can FaceTime in and we can be looking at each other across the globe. And... At the same time, this can connect me with people around the globe. This can be the thing that creates all kinds of distance from me, between me and the people that I'm sharing a room with, right? How often I find myself in the evening and I'm looking at this thing and I'm totally unaware. My family is in the room and I'm looking at this. It can create incredible connection and it can create incredible distance by those that we're closest to all in how we use it, right? Uh, They've actually started doing studies. um, And I'm not going to say this is the reason behind it, but uh, there is a a study that I found in looking into today around some diagnoses happening in uh, adolescents, especially undergraduate college students. Uh, What we find is that lines of anxiety of depression, of a whole bunch of different diagnoses spiked right around 2010. But there was always kind of movement, but once they hit about 2010, these lines all started jumping vertical. Now, uh, people who study these things start asking the question, why, right? And I'm not here to give too simplistic of answers, but to think that some of the changes that have happened since 2010 don't influence this, I, I, I have to believe that much of, what, much of the world we live in is creating... Uh, some people look at this graph and they say, okay, what happened? What is a significant thing that happened in 2010? Uh, in 2010, one of the things people are pointing to is in 2010, uh, the iPhone 4 was released. Anybody know what was different about the iPhone 4? 
It was the first one with a front-facing camera. Before it, you could take pictures of what was over there. After it, you could take a picture of what's over here. In 2009, just before it, Facebook introduced the like button. Before it, you could put pictures out. You could put pictures of the kids. You could do whatever. The moment the like button was added, now, now you gain value based on how much your things are liked. Right? Something about who you are, your worth, your value, and how many likes you can gather. At the same time, in 2009, Twitter followed suit and started the retweet button. So you're not just putting something out. Now you can go viral. Right? In 2012, Facebook acquires Instagram, and we live in the world we are. And to think that technology doesn't have a way of shaping it based on how we use it. And I've got a name for me. I actually, I've, I've been convicted in, uh, in the last handful of days and weeks as I've been thinking about this message, about this story. Because often when we show graphs like that, we ask like, okay, what, is, what, is our, what are our undergraduates, how are they being shaped by their use of technology? And it was a, a few days ago I actually became convicted of, I was looking at this and wondering, okay, but also, how are my kids being shaped by having a dad who is influenced in some positive and negative ways by technology, right? How often I could sit in a room or at a dining room table with my own family, and instead of being present there, what I'm doing is I'm looking down and I'm scrolling a bunch of things, right? Hitting like, hitting retweet, playing into, and I'm not saying that's the problem. I'm not saying it's, but I, I am saying we, what we should be doing is asking ourselves the questions. How are we using our modern-day bricks? How are we using the technology that we have access to? The, the phones in our pockets, the cars we will drive on the way home. But how do we use the things that we have in our lives in ways to either try to build up the empire of us to make a name for ourselves, uh, to chase them for our own ends, or, like Solomon, to build up the kingdom of God to point to the one who has created all of it. How are we using what we're using? Because I believe we, like they, are shaped by the way we use them. I, I love the way Paul Paul will write to a church in the ancient world, and uh, Paul will say it this way. He says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does it look like for us, for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, uh, to essentially take every thought captive for Christ, that whatever we do, whatever we say, whatever we give ourselves to, we are not doing so to try to build our own names, to chase it to our own end, but to use the things that God has given us, the technology that we have. Because again, technology is not bad. It's how we use it and then how we are being shaped by it. How? How can we use it 
to further the message of Jesus because he calls us to be his witnesses, to be his hands and feet, to go out in the world showing the world who he is. And I have to wonder if part of the way we can do that is by living almost subversively, almost counterculturally, using technology not to divide but to bring together, constantly asking the question, how can we use it for good to build that kingdom? And so I'd encourage you, as we take off from today, maybe ask yourself the question of, of the technology that you have access to, whether it be a phone, whether it be a computer, whatever it is, what are some of the things that help you in your, in your following of Jesus? And then maybe what are some things that actually might get in the way that remove you from being present to the world around you? Uh, what are some ways that technology might, might, might actually entice you to chase after something that is not what God wants for you? And how might we be able to put some parameters in place uh, to be able to, to put guardrails in place so that we can use what God has given us for the glory of the one who gave it to us? Uh, would you pray with me? God, we pray that we as, as a people, that those of us who, who have given ourselves to following you, that you might open our eyes to the, the role technology plays in our lives, in our world. And God, we pray that we would not just give ourselves blindly to it, but that we might be people who are constantly evaluating, who are asking the questions of what is it that is helping us to walk more closely and what is it that might be turning us away in whatever that away might look like. And God, we pray that we might give all of ourselves, all of our lives, everything that we do, everything that we say for your glory, for your name alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.